It's wonderful to see you all uh, again this morning. I put my very special socks on this morning. Mark Rabick knows what that's about. I've got a pair of Luther socks. <laughs> Evidently, and what's the German on there, Mark? What's it, what, what's it say? Thank you. <laughs> and that means? Mighty fortress is our God. Mighty fortress is our God. So good socks to have on my feet. A mighty fortress is our God. We uh, have the privilege of continuing our studies uh, this morning in Genesis. And we are looking at the life of Abraham, if you're visiting us uh, today. And we've been doing so for the last five or so weeks. And we're actually in a part of Abraham's story, and which is the most concentrated part of his story in Genesis. And it runs from Genesis chapter 17 through to, to Genesis chapter 20. And it's uh, what's happening in Abraham's life in one year of his life, in his 99th to his 100th year. And it's quite significant what we see and what we have been uh, discovering. You see, Abraham was a, a, a Chaldean by birth which means he came a long way from the Euphrates River to settle in the land of Canaan. He did not know who God was. God called him out. Called him out of this place, out of the Ur. The name of the place is Ur in Chaldea. To a land that God would show him. And God gave him promises. He gave him not only promises, he gave him unconditional promises, which means that by God's word and God's word alone that these promises would be fulfilled. And there are three terms to this promise as we've read in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, I'm going to bless you personally. Abraham, through you and through your seed, there will be a, a nation. A nation that cannot be numbered. It will be like the, the dust of the, the earth or like the, the stars in the sky. That's how large this nation and this progeny is going to be. And Abraham, through you and your nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That means you and I. How does that work? Because from the seed of Abraham, Christ came. And when Christ came, he atoned for sin, as Emma reminded us this morning. And through God's grace, he poured out forgiveness to those of us who have trusted in him. But we also see the counter side of Abraham, right? We know from Hebrews 11, he is a, he's a great man of faith. But as we read today, we'll see his faith as a work in progress. We see at times that, that, uh, he has moments of great triumph. But at other times he is full of doubt. He tries to coerce God into his own way of thinking. Even tries to give God a hand to try and fulfill the promises. So we see him as a man that is very much a work in progress. And that's so encouraging, isn't it? Because who here is not a work in progress? We're all works in progress when we put our faith and trust in Christ. And you know what? We don't become instantly mature, do we? Boy, wouldn't that be great if we could? If we could have instant maturity, instant sanctification, instant uh, victory over the sins in our lives. What a wonderful life that would be. But that's not reality. 
I look at you and I think about my own life and I know that's not reality because we all struggle. We all have doubts. We all face temptations. Our faith is tested at every, every part of our being. But you know what? God is faithful. He is faithful. He never allows you to be tempted above that which you're able. When you're in the deepest, darkest place of doubt and, and insecurity, when you look in his word, his answers are there. He never leaves you or forsakes you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no separation for those who are loved by God. Deep truths that get us through the, the waves and turmoil of life. Last week we, we started in Genesis 18... And today we will attempt to get through to the end of Genesis 20. Last week we saw Abraham had a visit from the Lord in the first 15 verses. He didn't know it was the Lord, it was what we call a, a theophany. He saw three men coming towards him. The text tells us that, that two of them were angels and as we read through the story we, we are identified to the fact that the third person is the Lord himself. So, so what is a, a theophany? Uh, and it's kind of an important term because what does Scripture teach about face-to-face -face interaction with God? Scripture clearly teaches that face-to-face -face interaction with God ends in death. No one can see God and live. And yet we have the Lord here speaking to Abraham. He's, he's in a human form. He's in what we would say, a pre-incarnate state. And I believe that this theophany, the, the one who is speaking to Abraham here is actually Christ himself. A pre-incarnate Christ who takes on the form of a man as a second part of the Trinity. He comes as the Godhead's representative to give counsel to Abraham, to give him a message, to encourage him, to restate his promises that Yahweh has made. You see, the difference between a theophany and the other two gentlemen in this picture is that an angelic messenger never receives worship. Whereas if it's the Lord, they receive worship. That's how you can tell the difference. So on the heels of this, this situation where, remember, Sarah laughs because God restates his promise and she says, I will return in a year's time and you will be with child. And she says, yeah, turn it up, teacup, really. That's what she's saying. I'm old. Have you seen Abraham? He's next to useless. Nothing's going to happen. She laughs. And the Lord responds, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return and you will be with child. And by the way, Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? And then we have a lie. I didn't laugh. Not a good thing to do to the Lord. But nothing is impossible with God. So we pick up our story here in Genesis chapter 18. And we're just going to read uh, some selected scriptures throughout the morning to get the flow of what is going on. So Genesis 18 verse 16. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Verse 16, sorry. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Interesting, isn't it here? It's like a bit of a soliloquy. You know what a soliloquy is? Who here has seen the, um, the musical Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, most of us, some of you younger folks may not have. But what happens in Fiddler on the Roof, the main character often turns to the audience and tells the audience what he's about to do. It's just a, a dialogue between you and the audience and the, the other characters haven't had any part of it. Very similar here, right? The Lord, the Lord is um, impressing through, well, um, shall I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? Why should I hide it from him? He is going to be the heir of the promise. I'm not going to hide it from him. For I've chosen him. And he's going to be blessing to, to the entire earth. And then verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So he communicates, he dialogues with Abraham his intentions to go and check out whether Sodom is the place of evil that he's hearing about. And then we have a, um, you know, so, so this is God's plan. He reveals it to Abraham. He chooses to include Abraham in his plans he engaged Abraham in this dialogue. But don't be mistaken, God knew from the very beginning what he was about to do. No way does this dialogue change what's going to happen. Why? Because God's omniscient. And when God is omniscient, it means he is all-knowing. When he's all-knowing, he mean, it means he knows the past, the present, and the future. That's something our minds cannot grasp, right? Because we live in the here and now. We don't know the next moment what will happen. We don't know if the lamb roast is going to be burnt or not. But the reality is, God knows it all before it even happens. He is omniscient. It's a part of his character. And this dialogue if you like, with Abraham is really a, just a courtesy dialogue because he is the person of promise. But I also think God wants to display to, to Abraham the reasonableness of his actions. He wants to display to Abraham what is about to happen is right. It is just. Because sin has consequences. And because sin has consequences, God's justice needs to be administered. And that's what we'll get as we go through the flow of the story. And then we have Abraham's response. I'm not going to read Abraham's response. It's verse 22 to 33 of chapter 18. You can read it in your own time. But we have wonderful man of faith responding to God and, and starting to reason with God and, and, and requests of God some mercy. He says, look, if there's 50 righteous in the city, would you save it? God says, yes. If there's 45 righteous in the city, will you save it? God says, yes. If there's 30 in the city, will you save it? God says, yes. If there's 20 in the city, will you save it? God says yes. How about if there's 10 in the city? Lord, will you, will you show your mercy and your grace to the people if there's 10 righteous in the city? And God says yes. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I would imagine and 
Abraham's standard of righteousness is slightly different to God's standard of righteousness. I don't know how Abraham was measuring righteousness here. Maybe like most of us, he measures righteousness based on the fact that, well, he's probably not as evil as I am. Therefore, that's righteous. But that's not the way God measures righteousness, right? We all know that. If you go over to Psalm chapter 14, you get a pretty clear view of how God measures the righteous. Psalm chapter 14. Verse 3 verses. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Pretty condemning, isn't it? But that's the standard of God's righteousness. God does not define righteousness in the same way we do. To be righteous means that you are morally perfect without sin, without even the desire to do something bad. So your actions and your process are perfect and your desires are perfect. Now as we've just read in Psalm 14, in God's eyes there are none righteous. But isn't it wonderful in this dialogue between God and Abraham that we see the wonderful balance of God's compassion? And his divine justice. Abraham continues to plead 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. And God says, Yes, I will be gracious. And at the end, God is gracious, right? He destroys the city, but he rescues some. As we will see. So let's move to chapter 19. And I'm going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 19. Actually, I'll go um, back to the last verse of chapter 18 to provide some context. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men of the entrance, shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came, and so talking to Lot, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and then 
with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place! For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking. Don't you love the word of God and that it holds nothing back? We have here, by all accounts, a pretty abhorrent story. We have Lot, who is sitting at the gateway to Sodom. See, most ancient cities often had an arch, and this would be um, a way to serve the people. This gateway or this arch would be the official entrance to the city, for one, but it also served as the, as the city's city hall. This is where everything would occur in the life of the city. Anything of meaning, anything of importance. At the gate of the city, elders would be gathered there to debate issues about how the city would run or how the commerce would, would go. They would conduct business deals at the gate. They would resolve disputes at the gate. And at times they'd even advise the ruler of the city how to, how to get some civil order back into the place or how to run a particular part of the city. You see, in the, in the story of Abraham, it's been some time since we've heard about Lot, right? When was the last time we heard about Lot? Who is now sitting at the gate of Sodom. Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 13, you get a little vinaigrette here. Remember, Lot and Abraham had many servants, they had many, crop, uh, many uh, sheep, many herds, and they had to divide. And Abraham said to Lot, you choose, you choose. And Lot chose the Jordan Valley. Genesis 13, 13 gives us this little footnote. Adam, uh, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot had moved towards Sodom. The next time we hear about Lot is in the very next chapter where there is a war, a civil war between um, a king, Chaldamalah, and the, the kings of the valley, five kings of the valley of Jordan. And Chaldamalah wins this battle. It's found out that Lot has been taken away and Abraham goes and rescues Lot. And this is the last time we hear about him. And I reckon it's some 20 years before what we're reading today. Some 20 years have passed. And we now read that Lot is at the city gate. It means that we could assume he's become an active participant in the politics and commerce of Sodom. Lot has not only pitched his tent outside Sodom, he is now inside Sodom. This is what has happened in the past 20 years. And Lot sees the two angels coming and he, he says, oh, I've got to be hospitable to them. I'll, I'll extend some courtesy of hospitality to them. Come and stay with me. Come and stay in my place. And what is the angel's response? I know, we'll think we'll sleep in the market square tonight, thanks. We're quite happy to um, you know, sleep in the market square. 
Now, for any responsible host, when you provided hospitality, when you provided food, you also provided safety. That was your responsibility, to be a responsible host. We'll feed you and we'll keep you safe. You see, Lot was really uneasy about the fact that his friends, these, these strangers actually, wanted to sleep in the market square. He knew it wasn't going to be a safe place. He knew what went on in the market square after dark. So it's interesting, in the ESV you see this word, he pressed them strongly. He convinces them, come and stay in my home. It's interesting, isn't it, actually, because angels don't actually need to sleep. So why do they say this to Lot? I think uh, it's a test for Lot in many ways. It's a test. And then we observe two major acts of evil, right? You say, there's only one there. No, there's two here. Firstly, we see the lust of young and old wanting to rape and have sex with these visitors. That's what's going on here. They want to beat the door down and they want to have their wicked way. It's interesting, actually, because I think the next one is more abhorrent. When Lot, who tries to save face, his compromise has become so self-serving and self-centered. He says, no, no, here, have my two virgin daughters. Do what you like with them. But don't harm these men. It shows you just how far his twisted logic had gone. His bizarre and deranged proposal shows us the impact of this man who for so many years has lived amidst a moral sewage rubbed off on him. He says, have my daughters. Then the angels show some of their power. They protect Lot. They haul him inside because, remember, these, these men of the city were going to do to Lot what they willed. And you have that word again in, in uh, verse 9, the verb, then they pressed hard against the man Lot. Different context. But the angels protect Lot. They drag him inside. They blind the pursuers. They left out groping outside all night. Notice that. They're groping outside. Their, their lust is not satisfied. They wear themselves out. Sins like that never satisfies but then the angels display an escape plan for Lot and his family it's interesting when I read about Lot I have some questions about him his family I have some observations which I, I think are really pertinent to us as followers of Christ Firstly, how did Lot get into this situation? How did he get into this situation? He's a leading figure in the city of sin. So what contaminated him? How could he rationalize this fact that he says, here, take my daughters? What a change in his life over those 20 years after being with Abraham, 
after seeing God's blessing upon Abraham, receiving God's blessing himself. You've got to ask, what caused this contamination in his mind? We know contamination comes in many forms, right? We, we have toxic fumes. can contaminate the air. You can have air pollution. I remember when I grew up in Hawke's Bay, and this is something which I'll... Hawke's Bay is in New Zealand, for those of you who don't know your geography. Beth. Yeah. <laughs> Hawke's Bay is in New Zealand. She, no, no, I won't go into that. <laughs> um, we used to have lots of orchards. And about this time of year, occasionally you get a severe frost. And it was very dangerous to get a frost this time of year because the buds on the trees would get destroyed and your harvest would get destroyed. So when I grew up as a kid, on a potentially frosty evening, what you'd see was this black smoke and haze just fill the valley. Because all the orchards would go out and they'd light little oil pots underneath their trees. Little pots of oil. So that the smoke would rise and provide a canopy of cover so the frost couldn't settle. Great for uh, protecting your harvest. Incredibly debilitating for your lungs. You'd wake up in the morning, blow your nose, and you'd have black soot in your nose. And that's if you didn't even live on an orchard. So that's a... That's what toxic fumes do. You have other types of contamination where maybe you have a cesspool of waste and it overflows, it will contaminate soil. Unclean foods can contaminate your body. However, what we see here is a different type of contamination, right? And one is incredibly relevant to this story. Lot's association with evil contaminates his morals. His association with evil lives contaminates him. It poisons his mind and it erodes his morals. You see, when contamination is evident, compromising exists. And this is exactly what Lot is doing. He compromises. He wants to maintain his status in the city. He wants to maintain his right to rule. He wants to maintain the, the wealth and the, 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 the lifestyle to which he's accustomed by compromising morally. Here, have my daughters. This is not just Lot. Remember last year as we went through the book of Judges, we saw the whole nation contaminated by the nations around about them. Every man did what they saw fit in their own eyes. They worshipped multiple gods, but not worshipped the one true God. You see, when you flirt with immorality, your heart will be corrupted and eventually broken. But you've also got to square this off with Lot. Move over with me to Second Peter chapter three, uh, chapter two. Second Peter chapter two. This is where Peter is uh, warning against the uh, impact of false prophets and false teachers. First part of chapter two. And then he gives some examples and he starts down in verse 4 of Second chapter 2 and he gives these examples. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So that's his point. Get his point. He's, he's using, he cast angels out of heaven. He um, flooded the earth to destroy evil, and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This next verse. And if he rescued righteous Lot. Let that stick into your heart a bit. What? But if he rescued righteous Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Has your view of Lot just changed? (laughs) Peter informs us that Lot was righteous. Which makes sense, right? He was rescued. His sin wasn't punished. So what do you make of this testimony? Lot is called righteous. Well, Peter tells us that he didn't enter into the sin of Sodom. So he wasn't actively involved in the sin of Sodom, but he lived amongst it. This text also tells us that his soul was tormented by what was going on around about him. But in reality, he compromised. He became anesthetized by the things going on around about him. It just became part of the norm. And doing so, failed up his thinking. He remained righteous in the sense that he didn't commit the sins of Sodom. But without strong conviction, he allowed their sin to diminish him as a man and as a father. Lot became soared by Sodom's sin because he lacked convictions. But we are told, even though he lacked convictions, he believed in God. And it counted to him as righteousness. See, that's the difference. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. It doesn't depend on you and I. It depends on a gracious God who just keeps on giving. Lot is a travesty of justice. You can see that. He's, he, he's immorally inept, but he is God's. Nothing he did for those 20 years destroyed the relationship of eternal security. He is righteous. That's what the New Testament tells us. And his applications here, right? Simple applications. Are you compromising with your faith by the lifestyle you live and with the people you associate with? Are you flirting with immorality which will eventually corrupt your heart? That was the issue with Lot. He flirted with these things. He compromised with these things. He took his eyes off God. These are questions only you can answer before the Lord. I can't answer them. I just appeal to you, don't flirt with the world. Don't compromise on the truth of the gospel. Don't compromise on the commands of Scripture over your soul. Because when you do, will end in disaster what did Lot take out of Sodom nothing absolutely zero two daughters and a pillar of salt God pours out judgment on the city not only on this city, but on the cities within the plain of the Jordan Valley. The only city that's spared is Zor. That's where, Sodom, uh, that's where Lot goes. That's where he goes. And then you see, it's inescapable. 
further compromise and further sin. His daughters, because they're childless, decide to sleep with their father. Lot fathers two children. One is known as Moab, and the other is known as Ben-Ami. Both these children are fathers of the Moabites and the Amorites, and if you know your Old Testament history, those particular two people do nothing but harass the chosen line of Abraham. Sin has its consequences. Let's move to verse uh, chapter 20. And I will will read chapter 20 because I think this is all part of the cycle. So we've dealt with the Lot's compromise. Now we're going to deal with, if you like, Abraham's compromise. Let's read this chapter. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Sarah, and he sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent uh, man or innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me, my kingdom, a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what you see uh, that you did What did you see that that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she has become my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves. So they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Hey, what have we got here? Different day, same issues. Does this sound familiar? This sounds really familiar, right? Abraham the liar. He did it in Egypt and now he's doing it here. He actually passes this trade on to Isaac and Jacob as well, actually, if you want to read your account in Genesis. Why? Why? You see, it's interesting. Alan Redpath has said this wonderful quote, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, i.e. when you're saved, it's a miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. This is exactly what we're dealing here with Abraham, right? He has God's promises. He has everything going for him, multiple blessings, and yet he lies. He compromises. He repeats the issue. This is not the first time. This, you would say, is now a character flaw. 
You see, it's interesting. Abraham's lying increasingly becomes prominent when his life is in danger. <laughs> right? This seems to be the trend. When the truth might jeopardize his life. And you know what? He's no different to us. This is just another habitual sin. When we trust in ourselves as opposed to trusting in God. We show lack of faith and we're, we're faithless. You see, he's struggling to rise above the, and conquer those old temptations and repeated sins. This is the beauty of God's word. It's relevant for us. This is what's happening here. Yeah, she's my sister. But you know what? God remains faithful. He remains faithful. Abraham had not honored God with his actions, but the Lord used this occasion as an opportunity to capture the heart of a pagan king. This guy was actually one of the fathers of the Philistines. Bimelech. And we, as we know, Abraham, like all of us, when we sin, he justifies it, right? He insults the people of this town. He minimizes his sin. He explains how his life had become part of, a, as part of his life as part of a standard operating procedure for him when he got into a sticky situation. He was clueless to the fact that this lie was undermining the fact that he was a representative of Yahweh, of God Almighty. He was clueless of the fact that you know he's saying, "I will follow God Almighty." but I don't trust him to protect me. This is what's going on here. And look at Abimelech's response. He cries out, I'm, I'm innocent in this, and he is. And God agrees with him. And God protects him. Protects this pagan king. And then Abimelech uh, responds. He looks past the man, and he honors the status of the man. Notice that? You may not have. In verse 7, you've got one really key thing here. Now then, this is the Lord saying to Abimelech, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. First time in the Old Testament we have the term prophet used. This is how God displays this compromising Abraham, this lying Abraham. He's a prophet. He's mine. And Abimelech looks past the man Abraham and his actions, and he honors his rank as God's prophet. And he says to Abraham, here, take whatever land you like. Here, here's a thousand pieces of silver for, uh, for your wife. And in this action, Abimelech actually honors, this pagan Philistine king honors God Almighty by treating his representative with honor. And as a result, God favors Abimelech and his household. So what does this teach you? What does this teach me? I'm so thankful for the lessons out of Genesis chapter 20. Because it tells me that God's people don't need to be perfect to receive his favor. That's what grace is about. God's people don't need to be perfect to receive his favor, his protection, his provision, and most of all, his promise to redeem us from our sin. As you can see by Abraham's life, his works, his actions, his repeated lies, his deceit, and his faithlessness, it's never halted God's unconditional promises to him. God continues to bless and bless and bless. It reminds me so much of Romans chapter 8. I know we went here last week. We're going here again this week because for me this summarizes it beautifully. This is an encouragement to those of you who struggle with habitual sin. Those of you here who day in, day out are like Abraham and just struggle to to master and conquer things in your heart and life. 
Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's that on your mind. Yeah, sure, repentance is important. Yes, we must keep short accounts with God. But God's grace is so superabounding. There is no condemnation. He still continues to bless even when we foul up. He continues to bless Abraham. He continues to bless you if you're a follower of him. That's his tremendous love and his tremendous grace. You are a receipt of his unconditional promise, his unconditional love. There is no condemnation and there is no separation from his love. Rejoice in that. Don't be weighed down by the fact that the the temptation has got you. Get on your knees, repent and say, Lord, help me. Help me to walk in the Spirit. Help me to develop the fruit of the Spirit in my life today. Remind me afresh again, Lord, that in your eyes I am perfect because of Christ's righteousness. Now, if you don't have that certainty, if you don't know Christ, he's paid the penalty for your sin. None of your ability, none of your works will ever meet the standard. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We've read that in Psalms. But faith in Christ moves you from one realm to another. From a realm of disbelief into the realm of belief. To a realm of eternal security. To a realm of the fact that Christ's righteousness now is yours. It is a beautiful thing. And I appeal to you today, if you don't know him, Search him out. We're going to sing a final song, and as the team comes up, there's one particular verse in this hymn which I think just explains Genesis 20, explains Romans 8. When Satan tempts me to despair, because that's what happens, right? When we struggle with sin day in, day out, we, we, we are tempted to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. No condemnation. It's counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, to look on Christ and pardon me. Behold the throne of God above.